Good afternoon. My name is Andrea Petu. I'm a professor at Central European University, and I'm also the president of the Subcommittee of History of the Second World War of the Hungarian Academy of Sciences. And we are now in the ECU podcast studio with Pedro Aires Oliveira, who is a professor of history at the New University of Lisbon. His field of research is history of international relations, colonialism, decolonization, and contemporary history of Portugal. He's an author of several important uh, volumes about the Portuguese empire, memory politics, and uh, decolonization. And uh, he published articles in several national and international journals, such as International Relations, Portuguese Studies, Cold War History, and International History Review. And we are privileged to have him in the studio as he was invited together with the Embassy of Portugal and the CEU Department of History to give a talk at CEU about uh, World War II, how to assess its neutral status. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you, Andrea. It's a pleasure. My first question will be about Salazar, because if anybody is mentioning the Portugal and Second World War, obviously Salazar is the a key person. So why Salazar became important? What are the debates nowadays around uh, his uh, understanding and legacy? Well, Salazar is definitely one of the dominant figures in Portuguese 20th century history. He was born in the late 19th century, and he sort of came of age uh, during the liberal republic um, that uh, ruled Portugal between 1910 and 1926. He uh, entered into politics, so to speak, as, um, let's say, Christian Democrats. And he reacted very strongly against the secularization policies of the First Republic. And uh, later on, when in the final stages of the republic, he became known as a fierce critic of the mismanagement of the public finances of the republic, and he was called into the government by the military who were notoriously incompetent in managing the economy and the finances, and he gradually asserted his authority in the cabinet, and shortly afterwards he was made prime minister by the president of the republic who was a military. Therefore, he inaugurated a long reign in power that took him until 1968. So he ruled for more than 40 years in Portugal and left a very strong mark in the country. The Estado Novo, the new state, the regime that became closely associated with him, was um, uh, set up, so to speak, in the early 1930s. The Constitution of 1933 provided the institutional framework for the dictatorship until its demise in 1974. And also key legislation regarding labor codes, the corporatist apparatus, the colonial policies, they all had somehow the imprint of Salazar. And uh, he was quite, as I say, he was the dominant figure. And if you want to make some, let's say, some parallels regarding other European strongmen, dictators, uh, we're all aware of this debate among the historians of Nazi, Nazi Germany, the intentionalists and the functionalists, either as a strong dictator or as a weak dictator. I would say that Salazar's style of rule was clearly more of the strong dictator style because he had such a control over 
so many different aspects of administration. Nothing escaped his attention. He was a hands-on dictator. So he was clearly a strong dictator. <laughs> uh, right. So this, is, this was called the new state. Yes. So in what sense was this new? And especially if you compare it to the emerging illiberal states, which are all over in from Poland, Russia, Turkey. So what is your position uh, regarding historical analogies? Do they help us to understand what's happening now or they are misleading? And how can you use the Salazar uh, uh, new state as a point of comparison to understand what's happening now in the world? Wow, these are very many questions into one. Right. <laughs> I'll try to see if I can sort them out. Uh, well, um, my position regarding historical analogies, I think that they, are, they may be useful. Transchronological comparisons are a useful approach to history, but they should, of course, be used with some, some care, with some sophistication. We cannot simply make these analogies sometimes in order to make political points. I think mean, we've all grown up to this idea of appeasement, that we should not repeat the errors of appeasement. Appeasement was a very flawed policy, but uh, it's a very long way to justify things like the American intervention in Iraq. And I grew up listening to these kind of analogies and became a little bit allergic to it. Having said this, I believe that um, there are some disturbing parallels to be made between the, the interwar period and um, the period that we're living just now. And um, even though Portuguese politics seems to be very far away from the Salazar style of government, also because during the transition to democracy, there was a very clear repudiation of the dictatorship and its legacies, so nowadays there there is little nostalgic, uh, little nostalgia regarding this period. Although there are some admirers of Salazar, and they are, I think lately they're they are feeling more at ease to show their their sympathy. But uh, um, I think some parallels may be found between uh, the values embodied by the Estado Novo and some right wing populisms that are coming up in several parts of Europe, you know, socially conservative values, authoritarian practices, deference towards le the leader, nationalism, of course, all these things bore some resemblance regarding the, the principles enshrined in the laws of the Estado Novo. Was this a fascist state? Because that's also a big debate um, around the the characterization of the of the Salazar regime. So, what kind of positions are there in the present day historiography in Portugal about this uh, fascism of yes. uh, of the state? For a long time, it has been discussed if um, uh, uh, Salazarism and the Estado Novo could be somehow included in the family of European fascism. This is a debate that is going on since, I would say, the late 1960s, since the first social scientists, they were mostly exiled Portuguese intellectuals that were familiar with these debates in European and Western social sciences regarding fascism. And they were divided. Some preferred to look at Salazar as an authoritarian solution with some elements of fascism, but more of a folklore type. Other critics saw immense analogies, especially in legal terms, in constitutional terms, between the Stadunov and fascist Italy. The labor laws, for example, the constitution, they showed a great influence from 
corporatist and fascist uh, theorizers. And it's also true that I would say that until the outbreak of the World War II, starting after the Spanish Civil War, there was a, a clear moment of rapprochement between Salazarism and other European totalitarianisms, fascisms. You can even see that in their outlook. There was new organizations were created to the image of of other fascist paramilitary militia organizations, um, the Portuguese youth, including its feminine branch, the Portuguese legion, and other more irrelevant organizations. And when one looks at the photographs of that age, I mean, the resemblances are striking. You see people making the Roman salute. Even Salazar took the habit of making the Roman salute in in ceremonies and, and in, in all this stress also on gymnastics, the, the cult of the body, of youth. This, was, this gave Portugal a very fascist outlook. But in the final stages of the war, there was a preoccupation to defascistize the regime, to normalize some of these institutions. For instance, make the Portuguese youth more like the Boy Scouts movement. And so I would say that the regime lost its fascist elan. And uh, so it's the kind of position that you can take on this debate. I mean, it's, um, I would say it depends on how you see, I would say, the defining features of fascism. If you believe that fascism is inseparable from mass organizations, the role of the party, the cult of violence, aggression, etc., then I would say that the Estado Novo may not exactly qualify as a fascist regime. But in other aspects, for instance, uh, economic policy, policies towards the labor movement, etc., that makes, makes, him, makes them very similar. Uh, Salazar's Ars Poetica was this live habitually, just in comparison to Mussolini's live dangerously. So in the responses you are mentioning Salazar and not anybody else, but this was a, uh, Mm. this state was a regime which was uh, maintained and um, uh, reproduced and uh, constructed by others, not only by Salazar. Mm -hmm. So what does this live habitually mean as far as a form of governance? it means that you have to to conform yourself with your destiny, with your position in society, to the role that was ascribed to you by natural order, the natural order of things. You shouldn't be too too ambitious, you know, be happy with, with what you have. This is one of the most, I would say, enduring legacies of Salazarism, this kind of risk aversion, be happy to, you know, value what the little things that you have, don't protest too much, you know, unions are not very commendable institutions, uh, you have to be a, a good, hard-working person, uh, family values in, are extremely important, um, love your fatherland, uh, you know, these are, you know, life as a very predictable thing, you like to keep a very orderly society, uh, anything that might disturb normality would upset him immensely. So the regime was mainly tried to be, regarding the use of violence, very preemptive. The state has to be sufficiently strong in order not to use violence. That was one of Salazar's motto. We have to inspire a certain measure of respect or fear in order not even to be necessary to use violence. But this predictability and uh, orderly society were very far from uh, existing during the Second World War. So what are the key 
topics and uh, issues which are discussed during um, nowadays about the history of uh, Second World War in, in Portugal. I would say that uh, for a long while, historians were discussing uh, very much um, high politics, how Portugal uh, maneuvered, you know, in the chessboard of the war. What could explain the evolution, the trajectory of the relationships, especially in the political, diplomatic, strategic domain between Portugal, the Allies, the Axis. And, and, and there was a certain preoccupation to review, to scrutinize the version that Salazar wanted to leave for posterity. He wanted to leave this version of his conduct during the Second World War that he tried to be very uh, true to his neutral status, but could not be totally insensitive regarding the requests made by our oldest ally, Great Britain. So when Britain and America were in a very critical stage of the conflict in 1943 and needed to gain control of the Atlantic, he decided that it was fair to grant the Allies military facilities in the Azores because this was in the ambit of the Anglo-Portuguese alliance. And afterwards, he also tried to show that uh, he had rendered important services to the Allied cause. And in a way, this allowed Portugal to make this transition to the Anglo-American sphere of influence during the Cold War. It was just natural. It was a a continuation of our friendly attitudes towards the Allies. So historians had to correct some aspects of this narrative for a while. And afterwards, more recently, I would say that new topics started to emerge. And that may cast a new light on the relationship between Portugal and Nazi Germany. Maybe it was a closer relationship than we had figured it out in the economic and commercial field. Some Portuguese entrepreneurs, <laughs> the central bank, were eager to make a lot of money from war businesses. Also, um, there was a, a greater amount of interest towards attitudes of the Portuguese state regarding refugees regarding the persecuted Jews. And uh, this idea that Portugal had been exceptionally generous in 1940 regarding uh, some of these refugees, well, had to be qualified because this was an exemption in the, in the context of a wider rule that showed Portugal as a much more severe country regarding requests of asylum or passage during the war. Salazar didn't want foreign people in Portugal. He was afraid of their influence in society. He was very chauvinistic. Well, some, these are some of the, of the topics. There's also, some, for instance, some interesting research. I would say that a little bit inspired by this uh, trend of transnational history that tries to make sense of individual lives during the war in both sides of the conflict. And there's a very interesting research project going on by some colleagues in my institute that is tracking down the fate of Portuguese that were caught by the German war machine in what concerns uh, forced labor. So we realized that there was a very significant number of Portuguese workers that were in France that had enrolled also in, in the French army and then ended up their lives in uh, labor camps, concentration camps, and... Finally, their memory is being honored recently. There was a, an important ceremony in Mauthausen last year paying tribute to these victims of Nazism. There is a new museum which has been um, founded in um, Portugal about the 
memory of colonial history. Mm-hmm. So, and there, there are a lot of... May I just correct you, Andrea? Yes, please. It, 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 there's still a discussion going on. There's a discussion. They, there's an intention to yeah. inaugurate this museum, but... Uh, after it, a big debate erupted and uh, the municipality of Lisbon who proposed the museum is hesitating. I read the article in The Guardian. It's always a bad sign if The Guardian covers something because that shows that it's bigger than mm-hmm. uh, than the national context. And uh, uh, somebody made a, a comment saying that we cannot suddenly change the narrative that everything was good to everything was bad. So you as a person who have been working on the history of uh, colonialism, how do you see the uh, necessity to make this museum and uh, what what are the key questions the which are the topics of the debate so i think that there's been some talk for a while of um, uh, setting up a cultural equipment if i can put it this way in lisbon that would allow tourists and Portuguese to learn more about the history of their overseas expansion and empire. But the emphasis is more overseas expansion and I would say the more neutral sides of it, the voyages of exploration, scientific advancements that resulted from that endeavor, and not so much maybe on the darker sides of of colonialism, including Portugal's very prominent role in the slave trade. But somehow this idea never really went through. There was this economic crisis that hit Portugal very hard, but now there's this tourist boom in Lisbon and the municipality has a lot of money to spend on culture if he wants. And I know that tourist operators want very much this facility to exist, but people are somehow afraid that this will turn out to be a sanitized version of the imperial past. And so there was an immediate response by university professors, researchers, I have to say that I I myself signed this document, expressing great concern about the fact that the title that was on the table, The Museum of the Discoveries, contents that pointed to this sanitized version. But also there were other groups from civil society who came up, Afro-descendants, NGOs, SOS Racism. They were very, very assertive in the way that they said, on the first hand, we must urgently invest more on the discussion and um divulging of these controversial aspects of Portugal's imperial and colonial aspect that are not sufficiently appreciated by the population. A monument to slavery, a memorial to slavery, has to be erected in Lisbon. This is, uh, And this, is, this will happen because um, support has already been promised by the municipality of Lisbon. So this is a very, still a very controversial topic. I don't know how it will evolve. Interestingly, our Prime Minister, who is the first non-white person to head the government in Portugal, made this interesting statement, we have to decolonize the discoveries. So it's an admission, at least by the Prime Minister, that we need to, to make this discussion more plural. Right, but what is very interesting in your response is the participation of NGOs and memory mm-hmm. activists in this debate. So if you go back to the issue of uh, Second World War and Salazar, are there any topics or monuments or museums or uh, archives where you also see a kind of wider involvement into memory politics? 
Well, to be honest, I think that the sections of civil society that have made a greater pressure to um, uncover less debated aspects of Portuguese neutrality during the war were journalists, were relatives of diplomats who had been punished by Salazar for being, uh, let's say, let's put commas in this, too generous regarding uh, passport requests or uh, transit authorizations by, by Jews and other persecuted persons. And so there was this need to memorialize and pay tribute to the um, heroic acts of some of these persons. And so one of them, the diplomat Aristide Sosemen Mench, has become a sort of role model now in Portuguese society. He's seen as someone who, who embodies disinterested and the heroic attitude uh, towards the protection of dignity and human rights because he knew that he was going to be harshly punished by his government if he kept on issuing those visas. And he still went on, and there's now a foundation honoring his name, his deeds. There's also a museum in a, a very small village uh, in the center of Portugal that was a point of passage by trains. So this is a, a museum that is documenting the plight, the fate of the refugees during the war, their mark in, in, in Portuguese society when they when they stayed there for, for a while. But I would say that this is these are initiatives that are taken by researchers, journalists, and with some support by the government or munici municipalities. Uh, you have mentioned one approach uh, which is new in uh, historiography, which is this transnational history. So are there any new methods or uh, uh, discovery of uh, unknown archives? Because the mm -hmm. historians are always believing that there is a secret archive mm -hmm. somewhere. If you find that, you will have the answer for all your questions. So is there anything new which has been come to light in the past uh, years about the history of the Second World War in Portugal, which is interestingly or innovatively analyzed by historians? I would say that research has been mostly conducted within the classic parameters of historical method, using mostly written sources, but also photographs, uh, films, private testimonies in the form of letters and other um, personal documents. But uh, for instance, there's a great interest nowadays in Portugal on oral history approaches and methods. But the, the Second World War is a very distant event nowadays. So it's been not easy in the last years to find survivors of this period and, you know, find new testimonies that would supplement the written records. But regarding the history of the Stade Novo, uh, I would say there's a small boom in terms of uh, using oral history to document attitudes of resistance towards the dictatorship, everyday, everyday life gestures of opposition, subjectivities, um, and even sometimes a, a more elitist approach to history, also using uh, oral history. But this is uh, dealing with more recent periods, the 1960s and 70s. Thank you. Thank you very much, Pedro Aires Oliveira, the professor of history at New University of Lisbon. This was the podcast of uh, the subcommittee of history of the second world war of the hungarian academy of sciences from the podcast studio of ceu thank you very much for thank being you, here thank you andre it was a great pleasure to be here